In the face of the many crusading, irrational dogmatists of our day, some putative defenders of reason argue that what we need is to embrace intellectual humility, a recognition of our cognitive limitations and the impossibility of certainty. Why do thinkers believe that a concept associated with servile lowliness offers guidance for dealing with others' baseless arrogance? What's a better way to understand what's needed to encourage intellectual and psychological growth? Welcome to the New Ideal Podcast, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ben Baer, and with me today is a special guest, Dr. Gina Gorland. Uh, Dr. Gorland is clinical associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, she's also a longtime friend of the Institute. And we decided to speak with her today because uh, Dr. Gorland recently released an article on her Substack channel entitled Intellectual Humility is a Cop-Out, uh, in which she offers intellectual ambitiousness as an alternative to this increasingly popular idea of uh, intellectual humility. So, uh, Dr. Gorland, uh, maybe we could start by uh, your recounting a bit about uh, where you've heard this topic of intellectual humility come up. Why are people talking about it? Why is this suddenly a thing? Sure. So I've heard it from a few different directions. The, probably where I first encountered it a lot was on the academic front. Some of my greatest allies and collaborators in psychology have been on about this idea. Um, one example being Scott Lilienfeld, who sadly passed away from cancer a few years ago, but who was a bastion of rationality and anti-wokeism and uh, you know, pro-science advocacy within the field. He was a voice of reason in a lot of different ways. And he really, he actually helped me develop a measure of my concept that I've really been working to validate self-honesty. And when we were developing a measure together, and he was consulting me because he's one of the experts in the field on measure development, mm -hmm. he really wanted to add items that echo some of the intellectual humility measures that he'd been using. So items like, you know, I always want to hear the, uh, you know, I'm really curious about the perspectives of people who disagree with me. I recognize the limits of my knowledge. I, I you know, I'm willing to accept that my most cherished beliefs could be wrong, you know, a lot of which seemed fine to me. And at the same time, they made me wonder, you know, wh why are these examples of humility? So, so he and a lot of his colleagues and just a growing um, contingent of psychologists whom I really like generally, they're on about a lot of good things, are also on about this need for intellectual humility and that that's what's going to you know, stem the tide of wokeism and irrationality in our culture. And then more recently, I've also been engaging with more popular intellectual you know, circles like the rationality community, the, you know, the less wrong folks, <laughs> um, as well as this amazing podcast that recently came out you know, with Megan Phelps Roper as the host, right, um, on the witch trials of JK Rowling, where you can really hear the influence of this idea on Megan's thinking. You know, we want to hear both sides of the story. We're never, we don't ever want to be too certain, which is kind of what, what she attributes with getting her through this really radical intellectual transformation from basically fundamentalist Christian crazy person to <laughs> advocate for the, uh, rationality and civil discourse. So, so it's sort of been everywhere in my life. <laughs> And part of the reason I wanted to talk with you about it is because I've I've also seen it operating in a number of these different cultural controversies that we sometimes wade into, uh, and in in just the same way as you mentioned that the some of the people who I regard as the most honorable, uh, intellectually honest, rational commentators and and for, for example critics of irrationality here I have in mind John McWhorter, uh, you know he wrote this book called Woke Racism he he. Uh, takes the uh, kind of social justice movement to, to task uh, for being uh, kind of like a new religion and and just as irrational. Uh, and there's just a excellent commentary and criticism in that book. And there's just so much that he's right about. But at one point when uh, he's trying to explain what he thinks is wrong with it, uh, there's, there's a point where he says, 
that they are they think they're just so in, incontestably correct, so gorgeously surpassing millennia of brilliant philosophers' attempt to identify the ultimate morality that we can only bow down to them in humble acquiescence. Now it's it's interesting because there he's at the same time criticizing them for expecting our humility, but the kind of tone of his criticism is why why do they think they're so awesome? Uh, and you know, is that really what the problem is? Why does anyone? Yeah, and yeah. the thinking one is so awesome is part of the problem. So let's talk about just what this practice of humility that they are recommending is supposed to be. And, and here, I know one of the things you talk about in the Substack article is that there's a lot of different things that, they, that they're talking about and, and trying to kind of package together, and that's part of the problem. But could you, could you sum that up for us? Yeah, I mean, most of the specific practices are actually totally reasonable if packaged a little bit different. So the kinds of practices that fall under the heading of intellectual humility are check your premises or check your assumptions, be curious about incoming evidence, even when it contradicts your current kind of default assumptions and beliefs. Admit when you're wrong, right? Be willing to change your mind, check your biases, you know, be aware that there's such a thing as confirmation bias and that you're more likely to you know, ignore perspectives or evidence that disagrees with your current belief system than, you know, those that agree with it. And be careful of that, right? Don't be too quick to jump to conclusions. Realize that it's really hard to know things and that most people believe at least some things that are wrong that they're convinced are right all of which i agree with on its face it's then kind of the underlying assumption and perspective that that's imbued with that i think gets this idea into trouble and it's what's missing from the package actually more than what's in it that gets it into trouble <laughs> Yeah, maybe one way to, to summarize what gets packaged in with it is uh, this, this passage that I wanted to share from uh, Steven Pinker, a thinker uh, both of us, I think, have a lot of admiration for, in kind of the same category of the John McWhorters of the world, who's been very rational in the way he's opposed and criticized the worst uh, trends in our culture. But uh, okay. in, his, in his recent book on rationality, uh, Pinker says the following. I'm going to put that up on the screen. The psychologist David Myers has said that the essence of monotheistic belief is, one, there is a God, and two, it's not me, and it's also not you. The secular equivalent is there is objective truth, yay, but two, I don't know it, and neither do you. The same epistemic humility applied to the rationality that leads to truth. Uh, perfect rationality and objective truth are aspirations that no mortal can ever claim to have attained. But the conviction that they are out of their, that they are out there, licenses us to develop rules we can all abide by that allow us to approach uh, the truth collectively in ways that are impossible for any of us individually. So, you know, kind of like I like I indicated, you know, great that Pinker, unlike the woke act activist that he targets, you know, thinks that there's a truth out there to know. And as we were talking about before the show, his you know, his book on rationality actually does give a lot of concrete, helpful uh, uh, tips and tactics for you know getting your beliefs better in line with the truth. But here, the way that he's framing it is: this is a way of acknowledging that you can't actually know the truth. I mean, do you have reactions to what he's saying here? Yeah, I mean, my first reaction is what he's talking about is omniscience. And he's right about omniscience if you swap it out, right? If you swap out objective truth for omniscient knowledge, which is what a religious worldview would lead us to demand, right? Like either we're God and we have omniscience in some magical way, or we, or we have to be skeptics. And if we assume that that's the alternative, right, that it's either omniscience or bust, then he's right. But what he isn't allowing for is that there can be real certainty that we can know specific things and we can really know them, right? Like we can really know that evolution is true. We can really know 
the laws of physics as they apply to bodies in motion at the kind of macro level, you know, context that say Newton was operating, right? While still not knowing a lot of other things. <laughs> and he's sort of not allowing for that. I definitely want to come back to the issue about certainty later, because it's something you talk about in your in your piece. But I'll take a step back from that for a moment and just ask, what's the big problem with calling this the practices that we just described humility? It sounds like you're on board with most of the things they're recommending, and yet you don't like the way they frame it. You don't like the way that they package it. So. Uh, and, and this is the yeah. thesis of your of your article that the the right way to character there's a better way to characterize all this. So, what can you tell us about yeah. that? Yeah. So to start from just concrete examples of what I think is wrong with it, kind of where it goes wrong, where it's lacking. Notice what's missing from the advice. If you know something, have the courage of your convictions. Right. Dare to act on what you know, dare to pursue bold novel hypotheses that you judge to be worthwhile, even when everyone else thinks they're crazy and everyone else disagrees with you and it runs in the face of convention, right? Strive for the kind of deep certainty that enables you to build something ambitious and new, right? Get to first principles, get to the kind of universal truth that allows you to cut through so many of the particulars that you find around you and kind of see to their essence, right? Like get to, you know, I have a whole separate article on my Substack about first principles, which I call the real superpower of the, build, the builder's real superpower, because you can hold fast to the North Star, like in Jeff Bezos' example, customers are always going to want things that are better and cheaper. <laughs> Right, that and we want happy customers. So we're going to focus on customer obsession over things like satisfying our board, over things like outcompeting Google, over you know all these other things that could be distractions. If we didn't have this deep fundamental truth that will still be true ten years from now, intellectual humility not only doesn't help with that or give guidance on it, it implicitly discourages that kind of ambitiousness. Because the implication is that you are noble in virtue of recognizing how little you know, right? You're noble in virtue of being able to say, yeah, you know, this is my best. You're, you're noble for holding your convictions loosely, right? Like this is a common aphorism in the startup world, strong convictions loosely held. Hold them loosely, don't get too attached to them because they could always turn out to be wrong. And so I think some of the kind of some of the hardest work, the toughest heavy lifting involved in the work of knowledge and, in, and the work of applying knowledge to life is not only absent, but implicitly discouraged by this alleged virtue. And I think the reason for that is that it's setting the bar in the wrong place and in much too low a place. You know, it's setting the bar not on achieving knowledge with the recognition of how hard that is, but rather settling for uncertainty, right? Settling for, for guesswork and calling that noble in effect. One of the interesting things about your article is you talk about uh, certain psychologists and philosophers who I think recognize the problem that you, you've just pointed to and want to say, oh, but I don't want people to do that. I don't want people to, uh, dismiss the real knowledge that they have. Right. Uh, and, and they'll just say, but there's a difference between humility and servility. And your reaction, I take it in that article is, but that's just not what <laughs> humility actually is. The humility- It's literally not it. what it means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, then just so change the word. Right, but yeah, right. I mean, and it's just and, really, if you actually look in detail at the measure they're developing that is supposed to be the better measure of humility because it, forecloses the possibility that you interpret it in this way as a, well, you're just, you know, neurotic and servile and you're never too sure of anything, you know, to the extent that it keeps you from acting and it makes you obedient, right? That, well, we also, in our measure of intellectual humility, we've included three subscales, 
one subscale is owning your limitations and that's standard intellectual humility items like i'm you know i recognize that some of my beliefs might be wrong i am not threatened by the discovery that i have erred or you know i realize i might be wrong about some things and then there's a second subscale which is i think it's called it's in the article it's called uh, love of truth i think something like that and it's items like i strive to you know i always strive to expand my knowledge i love to learn i love the truth like how is that part of an intellectual humility concept that's not what intellectual humility means like you're sneaking in i mean talk about like a classic package deal you're like taking what is actually the opposite of this concept and you're crediting you're, you're kind of harnessing it in order to give this concept more credibility right if you look up humble in the oxford english dictionary which i did this morning the first definition is having a low estimate of one's importance worthiness or merits marked by the absence right. of self-assertion or self-exaltation lowly the opposite of proud and then if you look at the like the latin root of it it's low lowly small slight mean insignificant face uh so they, they really are proposing to use it in a kind of neologistic way and you have to wonder why it's I mean, my best guess at an explanation would be they're too conventional about the way they think about ethics. And they know that humility is classically regarded as a virtue in the Judeo-Christian world. And they just don't want to oppose that. I mean, do you have, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's my impression also, that there's a kind of, we're taking for granted a certain ethics here right? or, or these authors these scholars take for granted an ethics that in which humility is a kind of unquestionable virtue right or a really core virtue and they're trying to rescue it <laughs> like they're trying to reconcile it with science right but they're not actually going to that deeper level which ironically you know if you want to be really intellectually ambitious then like question the roots of your of your moral worldview, right? Like question, you know, if there's something that doesn't add up, don't just start from the assumption that you have the right concept and that this is the right, you know, that this has to be a virtue and this is the right way to live and then try to massage your measure to reflect that. Question the moral code, right? Which, which isn't happening. Itself a very ambitious thing to do, I guess. Um, right. But let's, let's talk about that, uh, the alternative concept that you were recommending, intellectual ambitiousness. Uh, which you think better captures some of the actually good things that they're talking about. Can you tell us more about why you uh, chose that term to use to describe your alternative view and uh, maybe flesh that out a bit? What are, you know, uh, what are examples of, of intellectual ambitiousness that you think are widely regarded as, as actually good things? Yeah, I mean, in the spirit of what I think is intellectual ambitiousness, I should say, I'm not totally wedded to ambitiousness as kind of the right or the ultimate you know, contrast here. But I, I don't know that this should now become you know, a bona fide virtue in its own right. Maybe, maybe not. But, but I can see arguments for it as a, a helpful um, ethical, epistemological concept, a concept kind of at that interface. Um, the reason that I've chosen it as the juxtaposition to humility is. A, because I want to highlight what's missing and sort of motivationally what's really important to emphasize in one's own mind, and also what's right about the intellectual humility literature, which is that knowledge is really hard work. You know, Greg Salmieri has made this point you know, many times in various talks and forums, but and it's, I've kind of internalized it, and I've seen it particularly when dealing with really ambitious people in any line of work who are trying to, you know, figure out new ways to do things, who are trying to kind of get to the bottom of, you know, the, this economy, what can we expect to happen with interest rates in the next five years? And how does that affect our plan? It's so, it's complicated, it's hard and forming our own, or, or you know, what should my diet be? How, you know, which of these many different alleged, you know, nutritional philosophies or nutritional approaches is the right one and how do i know and how do i judge and how do i decide it's really hard work and people underestimate 
how hard the work is. And so people do often kind of coast on a, a pretense at certainty, right? People think that they've found the right diet and they haven't bothered to, you know, examine the 20 other diets that have perfectly equivalent amounts of evidence, you know, both in support of them and in, in contradicting them. And they've never heard of the placebo effect. And so they're not even, you know, factoring in that, yeah, you would feel better having tried any diet that you're feeling optimistic about. And that means absolutely nothing about the actual causal mechanism, you know, by which your, uh, you know, high protein or high fat food content is contributing to your mood or whatever, right? It's really hard. And so it takes an ambitiousness to kind of up your, to, to raise your bar, right? That there's a kind of a, a raising of the bar needed. There's a wanting to really know, not just to pretend at knowing. And it's harder. And I think there's something lofty about it, right? And so I want to signal that, that the, the quest for knowledge is an ambitious quest. It's, it's not going to come easy. It's not going to come cheap. And also because ambitiousness to me feels, if not like the polar opposite, very different from humility, right? It sort of has a very different motivational emphasis, right? And, and skew where it's not about groveling, it's not about lowering, it's about raising, right? It's about aiming higher and recognizing that, that that's going to be hard, that that's going to take work, that you're going to often get it wrong, right? So a lot of the particular observations of the intellectual humility people will apply, but they'll mean something very different. Oh yeah, I'm going to fail a lot. I'm going to be wrong a lot because that's the work, because that's what it may, I have to accept those costs in my quest for real knowledge, right? And I'm, I'm ambitious enough to take all that on. So that's my thinking behind it. I mean, I should say that I, I, I like the term ambitiousness here. I think it, it conveys a lot of what's needed. Uh, one of the things we've talked about in the past is the relationship connection between concept of ambitiousness and the concept of pride. I mean, in, in Ayn Rand's philosophy, she regards pride as a, as a moral virtue. She actually at one point uh, glosses it as moral ambitiousness. I think she'd regard right. the kind of intellectual ambitiousness that. that you're talking about as, as one important aspect of that. And I can see why like maybe maybe the world isn't quite ready. Not all of the world, at least, is ready for thinking about pride as a virtue. But if you if you the way I often explain it is, it's the same idea as taking pride in your work. As except that it's not just yeah. your work. It's it's taking pride in your soul. It's taking pride in um, your psychology and your knowledge and uh, wanting to desire the best in all things, including wanting to know. The truth about the world and for some reason there's not the same uh, stigma associated with the idea of taking pride and often the people who advocate humility will say no we're not against taking pride we're just against pride but okay but they're, they're, yeah. they're actually pretty closely hmm. related and there's a yeah, there's a difference between pride and arrogance which is the thing that they're opposing yeah um, but, yeah so, and even arrogance i mean originally sorry i don't know if you want to if we want to go, go on ahead. this brief tangent but Originally, before I realized that I wanted to write this piece on intellectual humility, I was actually on about arrogance. So my, my first take here was people use arrogance to mean both this kind of boastful posturing and the kind of decisiveness and the kind of confidence that comes with genuine certainty. And I hate that. I hate that, you know, where, where I've heard arrogance come up the most as a therapist and a coach has not been in context where, ooh, like I need to help my client be less arrogant. I mean, that's not unheard of, but where I've heard it come up a lot more is I'm worried that I'll be perceived as arrogant if I say out loud what I really think is happening here, right? Or if I take a stand on this policy that I know is going to upset some people and is going to ruffle feathers and, you know, there's some chance I'll be wrong. And then am I really able to tolerate that, you know, the, the kind of the loss of credibility or, or whatever the case may be, where the, the worry about appearing arrogance actually undermines people's courage and confidence in what actually ought to be you know, credible judgments. So it's just kind of the flip I mean, side just, of this just like worshiping of humility. A, 
just like there's a package deal involved in saying that it's good to be humble where you're drawing on the idea that it's good to acknowledge there's a difference between what you know and what you don't packaging that right. with and by the way be lowly there's also a package deal with pride and sometimes arrogance in the same way where you say this is a bad thing to be because it's bad to boast and therefore you actually also shouldn't be assertive or acknowledge right. what you know or ever be too sure of yourself right exactly exactly don't ever be too sure of yourself because you'll be just like those blowhards who you know you'll be just like trump in effect I don't know well, let's talk know. about being sure about yourself <laughs> Get examples because the, we mentioned earlier when we read that passage from Pinker that the uh, part of what they, the intellectual humility advocates are packaging with the actually good stuff is this idea you can never really be certain. And you had mentioned that you thought if there's anything legitimate about what he's saying there, it's perhaps the idea you can't be certain in the sense of being omniscient, of being an all-knowing God who, who can never be wrong about anything. Uh, and who never yeah, has omniscient to or infallible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, you suggested, and you say this in your article, that there is such a thing as earned certainty, which you're distinguishing from that religious conception. Uh, say say more about that. What does is, what is earned certainty look like, and why is that an alternative to this kind of religious view of what certainty is? Yeah. I think we all probably know, or at least we've all at some point experienced getting to the point of being sure of something because we've really done our homework, right? And the, the kind of homework involved is very different depending on the, the kind of knowledge, but, you know, being really, I mean, for, I think probably a lot of us, like, I am sure that all else being equal, my children are going to be better off getting an education that emphasizes like agency and, you know, and and independence than an education that emphasizes servility and obedience. Like, I am sure. And, and when I say I'm sure, like I, I haven't, you know, I wouldn't even say that I knew that for sure five years ago, even though I had objectivism and I had all these you know, kind of high level principles, I had to really kind of see and practice, okay, well, what are the different kinds of educations out there that at least claim to emphasize agency and what is so good about that and it's actually really complicated because some because on some conceptions of agency what that means is you just let your kid do whatever and that can't be right because my three-year-old will you know color all over our walls and dump all her food upside down and you know and hit her brother if we like if we just kind of let her have the run of the play like is that what we mean by agency right and and the kind of unschooling movement which claims that you know, the way to foster agency is to to kind of never force anything on your right like let the kid decide what they're interested in and if they want to learn math great if they don't that's fine because they should follow their interests if they want to learn to read fine eventually they'll probably be interested in reading but you know don't push it that's the dead wrong conception of agency and i've had to learn a lot about both kind of the right approaches and the wrong approaches and what they get right and what they get wrong and i've had to observe my own children to really understand what I even mean by agency, right? That it's a capacity to choose and execute goals in the world for oneself, which is so different from what I even understood it to mean initially. And I've come to understand a lot of very substantive particular things about kind of what does and what doesn't foster that in an educational context and at different developmental stages. And now I can say with certainty, I would rather have my kid in a Montessori school, not just any Montessori school, but the kind that it fosters the kind of agency that I mean, than you know, a, a progressive school or a public school. I know it, but that's the kind of work I'm talking about, right? Like I, I don't just casually know it. I really know it. And, and there's a lot that goes into that. And I think most people don't have that about most issues. And I don't have it about most issues. I have it ab about a couple of issues. <laughs> but that's what I mean by earned certainty. Like you've really gotten to the kind of, you know, the, the bottom of something, or you've really engaged with a whole lot of different kinds of, kind of evidence and, you, and inferences, and you've come to really understand something. And then there's also things that are much closer to the perceptual level. Like I'm, you know, I'm certain that 
if I put my finger in the fire, you know, <laughs> I'll get a burn, right? And then I think lots of gradation in between. But but the point is that you know, it looks like something to get to knowledge. And it's different from not having it. And I think there are uh, a number of the uh, critics of certainty who would say, well, it's it's fine for you to be confident in your belief system. And it's it's fine to think of it as a sort of psychological concept, but they would they would dispute the idea that there's some uh, logical concept of certainty that plays any meaningful role in in science. And and there I think, no, there's still there's still uh, mistaken about that because there's a real difference uh, between someone who's, let's say, done a good amount of homework and they, they they think that their scientific hypothesis is probably true, but there's a couple of, you know, possibilities they haven't ruled out yet. Um, they haven't, uh, they haven't done the experiment to rule out one possible cause. Uh, and so they're not certain they're, they've got a high degree of probability, but it's not certain. There's a difference between that and someone who has ruled out all the alternate possible explanations. And uh, exactly here and marshaled, really yeah, and marshaled a wide range of evidence. Sorry, Ben. Sorry. Yeah, and marshaled a wide range of evidence in order to rule out those possibilities. And I think part of the reason why they hold on to the idea, and you often see this coming from the Paparian critics of of certainty, is that they 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 think, well, there's always possibilities you can't rule out because you can always imagine something that could come up and foil your hypothesis. But there's a big difference between an imagined possibility and one that you have, you know, actual scientific evidence for. Like, would any of these critics really say uh, that we're not sure that the Earth is roughly round um, as opposed to flat? We can't rule out that possibility with, with, with certainty. Uh, or better than well, that, and are they really we know that say, there's a whole movement of flat earthers yeah, right. who deny that, but right. So it's not like there's nothing to defend there, right? Like it's actually really important to be able to come out very boldly and decisively in favor of the thesis that no, we know this. It's not just my belief against your belief. Like we know, <laughs> and the same thing. Not you know. Flat Earth, like that, requires actually, cons you know, conspiracy theory level denial of like photographs and you know, oh, people have gone to elaborate lengths to deceive us. But then you get to things like you know, the theory of evolution, right? Or the, the Earth revolves around the sun. If we want to go the kind of you know planetary route, and people will say, okay, well, Newtonian physics has been invalidated because it turns out that it no longer operates, you know, at microscopic levels of or at like whatever is the like cosmos level you know close to the speed of light that it just sort of breaks down and, and that's where again there's this insistence that either you need omniscient like either he needed to have described the physical properties and relationships among any and all uh, you know entities ever to be discovered or what he discovered wasn't knowledge and i think it's a good example because newton was in my recollection, because I studied some of this, um, some of his work in the context of you know, the philosophy of science way back in college, so I may misremember things, but my recollection is that he was particularly rigorous about establishing and sort of delimiting the context in which he does and doesn't know things, right? Like he was so careful about not claiming to know the mechan the kind of physical mechanism by which gravity operated. Right? He had identified, like, no, definitely there's this systematic relationship between, you know, between physical bodies at this kind of macro level of observation. I'm not claiming to know what's maintaining that. I'm not claiming, you know, don't start positing effluvium and, this, you know, and this and that. We just, like, we, I, we don't know. We need to do more, you know, observation and more research. We need new tools. And immediately people start positing effluvium and, you know, speculating on all the possible reasons why there's gravity and then you know demanding a godlike kind of omniscient explanation of it but like that counts as certainty even if it's incomplete right like, even when it raises questions which inevitably it will because you know the universe is vast and complex and there's always more to learn and new things are going to happen and things are going to change but you know what you know 
And that's, I think, a really important part of this insight that you kind of lose with Popper, right? And with this whole epistemic approach. Yeah, Newton's famous line is uh, hypotheses non fingo. I feign no hypotheses. Where what he's talking about go. is is you don't the feigning a hypothesis is just coming up with something on the basis of imagination. And uh, well, you can't rule that out. Is what you can't rule out feigned hypothesis is what the critics of certainty say. But they're the ones we shouldn't be entertaining in the first place if they're not based on anything. Right. Like basically the so let's uh, shift gears a bit to bring this really down to uh, brass tacks, because uh, I imagine that I mean, this, there, were, there were hints of it in various places in your, in your article that this is a particularly important issue for you as a psychotherapist, uh, because you're trying to think about what kinds of practices and strategies are you going to recommend for your patients? And where do you see this coming up in a psychotherapeutic setting? The, the problem of recommending to patients that they practice intellectual humil humility and why is it that something like intellectual ambitiousness, that's instead what you would prefer to recommend? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of alluded to this briefly before, but the problems that people struggle with in my experience, you know, coaching them, doing therapy with them are almost always, and I think at a fundamental enough level, always problems of lacking confidence, right? Problems of insecurity, problems of either not being sure enough because they don't know how to get you know, sure, right? They don't know how to do that work or what work is involved and or lacking the courage of their convictions, even when they are really onto something. Like I've definitely had, you know, I've worked with company founders, um, leaders who like they've had an insight you know, like people are going to want our product more if we you know, kind of offer it in this more modular way versus if we kind of package it all together. Their team is skeptical and they feel like, well, I don't want to be the kind of stubborn, you know, hardball leader who just steamrolls over my team. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put it to a vote or... I'm going to try to kind of keep talking to them about it and hope. And, and I do think part of a leader's job is to, to get that kind of alignment and consensus. But to do that, you've got to be really courageously, boldly assertive of your views. You know, it makes me think of like, and I use this type of example with clients sometimes, like when Jeff Bezos sent this famous memo, or at least allegedly it was from him and it easily could have been based on what I've heard of his leadership style that basically told everyone in his company, okay, you are now going to switch to using this, um, that's like AWS technology, right? Am I, am I referring to it right? Again, shows what I understand of the technical parts, but you know, you're all going to switch to it. You know, these objections will not, uh, overrule my edict if you don't want to do it you're fired thanks have a great day basically <laughs> like and he as i've since then learned i mean he based this insight on something like a year's worth of conversations and research and really it, kind of deep thinking about where technology was headed and about you know kind of the difference that this shift would make but he had to be really you know he wasn't going to get the, the level of understanding and certainty from his customer base in the amount of time that he knew he you know, wanted to put toward this, that he would need if he didn't have the courage of his convictions, right? So he stood up for his own conclusion and he was able to take the risk that people will get mad or that they'll leave or that you know they'll bristle, right? Like he was willing to ruffle feathers. <laughs> he was willing to stand up for what he knew. And that's really hard for people. And it's really hard, you know, it's hard, especially either when it might upset someone or when it, involves critical feedback that you're going to give some, right? That I think you're going about this wrong and here's why I think that, right? Or I think we're going about this wrong. I think we're moving in the wrong direction and here's what I actually think we need to do instead. It's it's socially hard, it's sort of emotionally hard, right? There's a lot of, a, a lot of actual risk insofar as you know, people are unpredictable and they have free will and to a certain extent you do you know, take on the kind of social 
costs that some people are going to get annoyed and start petitioning or they're going to leave your company or whatever. But, but emotionally, it often feels much more threatening than it actually is insofar as you don't have this conviction, this really deeply internalized conviction that I can know stuff that, you know, that my mind actually can, you know, latch on to reality, that I can grasp reality. And that grasp is solid, you know, when it is, right? And that there's a way for me to know when it's solid. And when it is, then I don't need further permission or sanction or confirmation or validation. Like I see it and I can act on my judgment. I can act on what I see and, and have, you know, not faith, right? But confidence in that. That's really hard for people. <laughs> And so the fact that humility actually seems to again motivate precisely the kind of the kind of settling and the kind of recognizing that you're limited, right? Like it's this emphasis on your limits, on your limitations, rather than you can see to the heart of things. And maybe you do, and maybe you're close to seeing to the heart of things. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't stop. You know, or if you're Katie Carrico, who, you know, spent what, 30 years of her career doggedly, stubbornly researching this notion that you could use you know, mRNA to create you know, immunity, right? To kind of mimic an actual uh, pathogen. And nobody wanted to give her any funding for it. And she never got any recognition for it you know, until COVID happened. Right? But she just kept plugging away because she believed, like not just, she believed the evidence. She could see how it's possible. She could, she saw, you know, she like read the, you know, read the signs on the wall. And she had the confidence, the courage of her convictions. And that's just so important and so hard. And nobody would have called her humble. I can tell you from, you know, from what I've read of her personality maybe one more thing we should talk about uh, just to make sure your position here is crystal clear is how the possibility of certainty uh, dovetails at the same time with the reality of uncertainty when when there is uncertainty and so you've been using examples now yeah. from the business world and from personal psychology and science and it's certainly possible for people to get things right in those fields, but it's it, they often get things wrong and wrong. they often yes. know that they haven't figured it out yet and that they're somewhere in between. And yes. So the first question for yes. you is, how does intellectual ambitiousness as you're conceiving of it uh, fit into that fact? How does the intellectually ambitious yeah. person deal with mere probabilities, real uncertainty? Yeah, that's, I'm really glad you're asking that because that's actually more often than not the realm in which I'm helping people with this, right? It's not, you know, yes, there are important cases where like, you just know, you really know, but in the context of you know, really difficult, innovative endeavors, it's much more often that you're managing degrees of uncertainty and you're managing contingent possible futures and probabilities and where you can have certainty is at the the meta level of i have either you know i have surveyed the possibility space right the hypothesis space and i'm and i know that i don't have major blind spots here in terms of you know there being like a whole field that i haven't discovered that has a bunch of insight to offer me on this topic or that you know would allow me to actually make headway in projecting, you know, the likelihood of this outcome because I just haven't done my research, right? Or that I'm not selectively avoiding thinking about certain possible futures because I don't want to have to deal with those possibilities, right? Like I, I am certain that, that I'm going about this estimation in a rigorous way and or that this is a worthwhile bet to take, right? So again, like famously, Bezos assigned something like a 10% or I don't know, if maybe it was 30% probability to you know, Amazon actually working out as a company when he started it. There's this online bookstore, which was this kind of crazy, you know, new weird idea at the time. He said, maybe it will succeed, but more likely it'll fail and then I'll try something else, right? But 
he saw it as a bet worth taking because something like this is going to change the world and is going to be the future. The internet is changing everything, right? You can imagine equivalent insights today about AI and about you know, machine learning and some of these technologies, right? like this is changing everything. And it's going to be the sort of thing that allows us to solve this type of problem. But there's so much I don't know about how, what that's going to look like or how long it's going to take or, you know, who's the, who the market for it is actually going to be, or is it going to be a bookstore? Is it going to be more of a, an online marketplace? Right. And, and I'm incorporating into my mental model all that uncertainty, right? And I'm allowing for this high a likelihood that I will fail. And I am, and I've asked myself the question of whether it's going to be worth it to me, even if I fail and how worth, you know, and how awesome would the upside be? Right? And like, how am I modeling the likelihood of, you know, that scenario? And then when I weigh those likelihoods, what do I want to do? Right? Like what is really, what's worth going for? Even if it's really low probability, but because the, the small chance of, you know, ending up on Mars or whatever the case may be is so completely worth the five years of trying. Right. Or whatever. And like, there's a real, there's a sense in which you can get to certainty about that. Right. And that's hard and it's virtuous, right? It requires a lot of ambitiousness. I think. I think one way to think about this kind of case, I think mean, you're, you're, you're quite right that there's certainty at the meta level about, about the fact of uncertainty. And if that sounds paradoxical, you have to think about, well, why is it important? Why is it good to acknowledge uncertainty? Well, it's good because uh, if, you, if you don't acknowledge real possibilities of error, then it's going to make it more likely that you make the error and that you don't get at the truth. But an ambitious person who takes pride in knowing wants to get at the truth. And so they need to be able to exactly. uh, explore these errors. Maybe maybe what looks like an alternative possibility that uh, you're not leaning toward, maybe that's actually the, the truth and you need to go figure it out. And uh, it's if somebody who really cares about knowledge, who really desperately, passionately, ambitiously even arrogantly wants to only know the truth and no falsehood, they're going to, that's what they're going to want to do. And there is, um, there's an anecdote. You, you showed me this, uh, psycho this psychology paper, uh, and it's one of the ones where they, I think are on your side about a lot of things saying, oh yeah, no, we won't, we don't want people to be servile, but they weirdly call that humility. Right. Um, yeah. uh, that is, they weirdly call the, the ambitiousness that you're recommending a kind of humility. They start the paper with the following anecdote. I'm just going to read the paragraph here because I think this is this is very interesting. In 2014, Laszlo Block, a senior vice president at Google, detailed the personal qualities the company seeks in employees. What we've seen is that the people who are the most successful here, who we want to hire, will have a fierce position. They'll argue like hell. They'll be zealots about their point of view. But then you say, here's a new fact. And they'll go, oh, well, that changes things. You're right. And they go on to describe this as paradoxical combination of strong professional will and humility. But if if you reconceptualize yep. the psychology here in the way I think you're suggesting, there's no paradox at all. It's like the very same love of truth that goes into being exactly. quote unquote zealots about their point love of view it. is the same like, thing that, that what you love very quickly, yeah. you know, see that they're wrong. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, it, do you love the illusion of truth? Like, do you love being held up in others' eyes as a great wise sage? Or do you actually love the truth? Because if you actually love the truth, you're not gonna you're gonna be thrilled to discover that you were wrong. Because I mean, doesn't Rand have a quote of his like, if I show them they're wrong, they learn something. But hey, if they show me I'm wrong, then I learn something, and that's even better. That's even more of a win. I think that's a good note to end on today. So I want to thank you very much for this conversation, and uh, we need to make sure to uh, share with our audience some resources uh, for how they can learn more about this. And first of all, uh, the article that we've been talking about uh, of yours, Gina, on your Substack, Intellectual Humility is a cop-out. Here's a short link that'll take you right to the Substack, uh, bit.ly slash humility cop-out. Nobody's apparently chosen that uh, nice. uh, tag on, on bit.ly yet. Um, there's, the, there's the article uh, I briefly referenced where I talk about uh, John McWhorter and his, uh, his battle with the woke activists, the old morality of the new religions. Part of what I do in that article is to talk about how what's really wrong with wokeism is that it's in effect advocating for systematic humility, 
Uh, and so you, the way you oppose that is not by embracing uh, some new kind of humility, intellectual or epistemic or otherwise. But then, yeah, we should we should also also reference uh, some sources that people might want to take a look at from Ayn Rand herself, because this is certainly something she had a lot to say about. And here I'll just recommend some entries uh, in the Ayn Rand lexicon. There's one on humility, uh, which she was very much opposed to, and one on pride. Pride understood in that sense of the virtue of moral ambitiousness and seeking the best in all things and wanting to perfect your soul. Uh, so take a look at that at bit.ly slash AR hyphen humility and AR hyphen pride. No, I mean, just to end on a final thought, because I don't, I want to make sure it makes it in to our discussion. There's a deep sense in which having the courage of your convictions, having the courage to kind of assert and act on what you know and caring to actually know, it means having the courage to live because you make your decisions, right? You make your, you kind of stake your bets on your judgment. And, and I think this is something that's really missing from the intellectual humility literature, but I think that objectivism uniquely imparts you know, what it means to take ideas seriously, right? What it means to really take responsibility for our knowledge is to take responsibility for our life. Because one way or another, we've, we have to choose. We have to decide where do we send our kids to school? What do we eat? What, which doctors do we go to? Who do we vote for, right? How do we live? And those are questions that require, you know, reason is our means of survival. And so I think remembering that link, remembering that this is not just some intellectual exercise. This is about the courage to live. So Amen to that. Can end us on that sentiment. <laughs> Thank you, Gina. So, if you uh, in the audience enjoyed this podcast, uh, please consider subscribing to our channel on YouTube. Uh, click the bell to get notifications for when we go live or post new recordings. If you're watching a recording, please be sure to like it, comment on it, share it. That helps attract new viewers to uh, fresh content like this. Same thing if you're watching on Facebook. And if you have questions or comments about uh, today's episode or questions about uh, objectivist philosophy that you'd like to see us discuss in future episodes, send us an email at newideal.einrand.org. We read everything that comes in, answer, and we, we answer many of those questions. So uh, wanna, once again, I want to thank Dr. Gorlin for her time today. And uh, thank you, Dr. It was a pleasure. We wish you all the best in uh, taking pride in your in your life work. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.